0: When this election is over, I will be the President of the United States. You will be vindicated and
1: proud, and the thugs and criminals who are corrupting our justice system
2: will be defeated, discredited, and totally disgraced. That's what's happening.
3: Welcome to Talking Feds a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. The jaws of the criminal law are closing slowly around Donald Trump, who for his part professes it's just the position he wants to be in. Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg hit pause for a few days during the week on a grand jury investigation in which the table seems completely set for a vote to indict the former president on charges growing out of the payment of hush money to Stormy Daniels on the eve of the 2016 election. Bragg's moves prompted head-scratching among former prosecutors and commentators, but the bottom line remains that the investigation is way too far along for Bragg to be contemplating a last-minute abandonment. And an indictment continues to be, as the word of the spring would have it, imminent. Comfortably holed up at Mar-a-Lago, Trump himself used the prospective charges to rile up his supporters with alarming calls to civil disobedience, including proclamations that the charge could lead to, quote, death and destruction that could be catastrophic for our country, close quote. He used the coming indictment to raise over a million dollars, and even as his legal fortunes continued to fall, He made political hay with his troubles, markedly increasing the distance in the polls between himself and Governor Ron DeSantis, his current chief rival for the Republican nomination for president in 2024. The feverish vigil in front of Alvin Bragg's office in the downtown Manhattan courts as the country awaited the first ever indictment of a former president obscured critical developments in the federal investigation of Trump's possible crimes. The chief judge of the Federal District Court in Washington, D.C. issued two rulings denying claims of privilege for a number of Trump insiders. Most importantly, Evan Corcoran and Mark Meadows, who are arguably the most important witnesses for the Mar-a-Lago documents case and the January 6 investigations, respectively. To help us discern which way the legal and political storms are blowing and how they will affect the national landscape in the coming months, we welcome three of the country's most prominent commentators, each of whom, to the benefit of our discussion this week, and I'm going to call this a little-known fact, are former lawyers, and they are Laura Coates, a CNN anchor and senior legal analyst and host of the Laura Coates Show on SiriusXM, where I'm really fortunate to be a regular guest. After a stint in private practice, Laura served as trial attorney in the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice during the Bush and Obama administrations. She's the author of two books, most recently, Just Pursuit, A Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness. Welcome back, as always, Laura Coates.
0: Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I a qualifying. <laughs> exactly. Happy in general and to be here. <laughs> to be here.
3: <laughs> David Jolie. David represented Florida's 13th district in Congress from 2014 to 2017. He's held virtually every position in Congress from intern to member and has worked outside of Congress as an attorney and political consultant. It really came home to me that we, as a country, have been doing this for a while, and I, as a podcast host, have been doing this for a while, because during the course of our discussions, he's become a father of now two young kids. How how old are they, and how's it going? Our little daughter turned four yesterday, and our son will be two in about three weeks. So wonderful, wonderful ages. Can they say Donald Trump? Probably. Yeah. I love those ages also. And Jen Rubin, an opinion columnist for The Washington Post and also, like David, an MSNBC contributor. Prior to her career in journalism, she worked as a labor law attorney for two decades. She's the author of the book Resistance, How Women Saved Democracy from Donald Trump. Welcome back, as always, to my Bolt classmate, Jen Rubin
4: from the class of 1986 Polt Law School, now called Brooklyn Law School. Always fun to be here, Harry.
3: Exactly. All right. Where do we start? That's not a hard one this week. The week-long vigil in Lower Manhattan ended with no definitive outcome and a few apparent curveballs from Alvin Bragg. I'm not going to put to us the task of figuring out exactly what happened on Wednesday when they didn't meet and Thursday when the grand jury met on another case. But let me just serve up this question. Anyone here see any reason that the prospects for an indictment are reduced since last week? Anyone connect these two days with some kind of cold feet or final holes to fill in on the part of Bragg's office?
4: I really don't. You saw that letter that he wrote to Jim Jordan, who had requested that he testify and produce documents. It was basically a get lost. That's not the kind of letter you send if you're losing interest in a case. And I think he is doing what prosecutors often do, which is try to get everything buttoned down. He has the additional challenge, of course, of all these security issues, because Donald Trump is Promising mayhem. I mean, he,
3: literally, potential death and destruction, Donald Trump promised.
4: Exactly. Him. And so I think he'll be ready when he's ready. And Donald Trump wanted to get everyone wound up, which he did, and giving a date that didn't come from Alvin Bragg's office, came from Donald Trump. And so when he's ready, he'll get the indictment, and then there'll be an arraignment, and then there'll be a bunch of motions and other activities, and eventually we'll get to a, a trial.
3: With fundraising all the way along the line.
0: Exactly. Exactly. You know, when you think about it, and like that apocalyptic language that was used as part of these fundraising, and Jennifer, you point out, of course, that, you know, the date of last Tuesday as being the date of an arrest has been obviously a publicity stunt. It didn't come from anywhere. His spokespeople said it wasn't based on a statement from Alvin Bragg's office or anywhere else. It was a date almost out of the ether as a creation of a kind of litmus test. Two things. One, the litmus test of the media, would they bite? Newsflash, they did. Second part, would those who support him bite in the sense of will it demonstrate that they still support him and believe, much as he has talked about over the years, that it's not really him thereafter. It's all of you. And yeah. so if you are going to demonstrate your support, you will still continue to believe that. And the third litmus test has been congressional and those who are elected officials to figure out what they would say when the inevitable microphone went right back in front of their faces, as it did for the entirety of his administration, to say, here is what he had to say, now react to it. And you've seen what happened with Governor Arnold Sanders, for example. When he made a statement distinguishing himself for his knowledge about the substance of the claim, potentially the hush money payments, to the idea of what's actually going on, there was political backlash. And so it was really Tuesday was the creation of the litmus test, and it's ongoing. It
3: was really an excellent point. I mean, David, the members of Congress, the ones who loathe him, we're told in private, the ones who are running against him, we know very well basically had to all come out, apparently, or so it seemed, at his demand, and condemn the prosecution. Yes, even if DeSantis tried to slip in a not very well-received quip. Yeah, look, I, I think politically it's been
1: a very good week in terms of Donald Trump and Republican politics. And I do think that DeSantis, you know, I call it the 24 hours of silence heard around the world. The one thing people will remember about DeSantis is that he blinked. And nobody else in Republican politics blinked. When Donald Trump said, they're coming for me, everybody got his back immediately. Mike Pence, Kevin McCarthy, Jim Jordan, go through the list. They all got his back except Ron DeSantis. And then when he did speak, he took the swipe at Donald Trump. And I think in Republican politics, look, Ron DeSantis has had a bad couple of weeks, just as Donald Trump has had a good couple of weeks you know, as we all await whether or not there will be an indictment, I do think it's still possible that there is not an indictment. I mean, from what we know, this is a difficult felony case to bring. And so if Alvin Bragg is doing that, as Laura said, you've got to have everything buttoned up. And I think Jen said, you've got to have everything in place in terms of the law and the facts. And then in the case of a former president, you have to deal with security. And I also think we can't dismiss the level of interference from Jordan and Comer. It's easy to dismiss the substance of Jordan and Comer's claims, and they're trying to drag brag forward, right? It's easy to dismiss that out of hand and say, Congress doesn't have any role, sit back down. But we can't dismiss how it complicates and delays things for the DA's office, right? You still have to run the process on that inquiry from Congress, you have to make sure that you are handling that inquiry exactly right. And the DA's office has limited personnel resources to handle that. So, did Jordan and Comer actually result in delaying Bragg's consideration for a week simply because Bragg now
3: had one more thing he had to get exactly right? Perhaps we'll find out. I mean, are you suggesting that maybe because of all these complications? Bragg's thinking of folding up his tent or just that it's going to take a little more time? Well, I don't think there's any way
1: to know. What we do know is the Mm -hmm. feds did not bring this case, a similar case against John Edwards, the feds brought and Edwards was acquitted. So we also know that Bragg had kind of decided to take a pass on this as of A month or two ago, and some of his deputies left, and the scrutiny got turned back on Bragg. Apparently, Michael Cohen started providing more information, maybe is where this turned the corner. But this case had never been strong until the last few weeks when Bragg said, Okay, we are going to double down and apparently try to make this happen. Where I do think Donald Trump probably had a little bit of insight, even though Bragg's office said there was no timeline on their end. I would posit that it's possible. That counsel in Bragg's office communicated with Donald Trump's counsel to say we are nearing an end. And as an attorney, you would inform your client that we may need to be ready for an indictment or not, but it appears it's getting to an end. The way Donald Trump has behaved almost like a caged animal since last Friday, you know, I say that just for the illustration of his temper in this case, obviously. To me, it does say, He's feeling a pinch somewhere. He does think something's about to happen. Now, the master of manipulation, he's turned it to his benefit for now. But if Bragg does move forward, then the former president is going to have to face real consequences.
0: And to your point, David, we do know that there was some communication with counsel to the extent that he was invited. And I use that term because right. no one really thinks it's I mean, you get invited to dinner, but <laughs> invited to talk to the grand jury, a very different connotation. But invited to speak before the grand jury, which is one of those nuances of New York state law where you are required to offer the invitation to testify in front of the grand jury if you are the target. It normally would not be done in other contexts because we all know who's going to say, you know what, sign me up. I'd love to tell you everything. I'm already a target and I think this will change your mind. Normally doesn't happen. We do know that that was part of it. But you also have to think about, and one concern I'm always looking at is a lot of the criticism has been from Congressman Jordan and others, almost alluding to why this case and why this feels trivial on the scale of hierarchy in terms of other cases to people. But in reality, that's as much of a criticism of Attorney General Merrick Garland and the failure to bring a case yet, or the decision to not bring a case as of this date. You're not ultimately be. because the, if the question is why on earth would the Manhattan DA's office go first, that's really a question of why others have not already gone. And finally, when I look at what's ahead, you mentioned the silence, David and Harry, on the issue. You didn't get a letter from members of Congress directed to Fannie Willis or even to Merrick Garland, but there was a focus on what's happening in Manhattan, what's happening there. And I do wonder if that's because this one seems truly imminent. One interesting question that, Laura, you touched on is
4: not so much why these other bigger cases have not gone forward, because they are arguably much more complex, much more serious But why Merrick Garland and the Justice Department didn't prosecute Trump for this exact crime? After all, Michael Cohen went to jail for this scheme to conceal federal campaign donations. He went to jail.
3: The federal jail, yeah.
4: Donald Trump was named as individual number one. Now, there's a really good argument that the day that he left office, when he no longer could claim immunity from prosecution under the current DOJ guidelines, Merrick Garland should have filed suit right there, should have gotten an indictment right there. If what Michael Cohen did was a crime and he got a conviction and he went to jail, why didn't Donald Trump? And I think there's lots of explanations, both practical and otherwise. But if we're really going to go back to the adage that Merrick Garland keeps putting out there, which is follow the law and the facts. You go after people regardless of who they are. There is no explanation for why the feds didn't prosecute individual number one along with Michael Cohen. And at some point, I would like to hear his explanation and answer for that, because I think that was a failure on his part. And in essence, he put the burden on a local prosecutor to see if there were other grounds, perhaps on state law, that he could hold him accountable for, because the people of New York deserve some sense of justice, some sense of the equal application of the law. And so it falls to poor
0: Alvin Bragg, as opposed to the federal prosecutors. When you look at this and talk about Merrick and obviously in his role as Attorney General, there was the... William Barr years, the Bill Barr years, right? And the idea of that tension of deciding not to go forward with the federal prosecutors who were under his particular umbrella at that point in time. Do you think that Garland thought this was going to be viewed politically because there had been that interim? Well, I
4: think that's very possible. And he took the same position, frankly, in the E. Jean Carroll case, which is a civil case, but in which he was loath to contradict the position that Bill Barr had taken, which is that these comments allegedly defaming Eugene Carroll were essentially within the course and scope of his duty as president, and therefore the federal government had an obligation to defend him. That was roundly criticized because many people thought it was just wrong as a matter of law and on these facts. And he was similarly, as in this case, very antsy about contradicting even an incorrect position that Barr took. And I think it has taken a while for Merrick Garland to understand that he cannot both pursue the law and the facts and restore the reputation of the Justice Department, and be consistent with everything that his predecessor did. Because what his predecessor did was not to apply the law equally, not to hold up the finest traditions of impartiality in the Justice Department. And you've seen how Merrick Garland, frankly, has shifted a bit When presented with essentially the same issue of whether Trump's conduct, Trump's speech during the presidency was something that he would be defended for um, by the federal government. In the case, the so-called KKK case, the civil suit brought by police and by members of Congress, Garland then switched tunes. He said, no, it can't be the case that all speech is within the course of a president's duty, this would be outside. We're not going to be responsible for him. So I think that shows an evolution in his thinking, which is, you know what? Maybe I don't have an obligation to simply follow along with whatever Bar was doing, because if I did that, I really wouldn't be fulfilling my obligation, which is to prosecute Trump um, if the facts and the law determine and to handle civil litigation according to the same rules that I would for other individuals. So in my mind, it's been kind of an interesting shift. And this was one area that was kind of left dangling because Mayor Garland never went back to this case. And so Alvin Bragg has been handling the set of facts, and it's his job as the New York prosecutor to see if there were New York laws that were violated. That's what he's been doing.
3: I just want to step in a little from having worked closely with Garland. I take your points. They're well taken, but I'm not sure it's an evolution. He did come in, I think, his number one lookout. You know, he revered DOJ, saw it being corrupted. He really, really, really wanted to right the ship. And that included, I think, logically enough at the time, avoiding an appearance of just simply listing to starboard instead of port or whatever. <laughs> That's probably the wrong, <laughs> you know, it's a real problem with being a uh, podcast host. You always go to these dorky sports analogies. But anyway, that was his really number one lookout to write the ship. And it really did need to be righted. And part and parcel that I think was trying not to revisit. That was his general presumption. Now, of course, then there had already been January 6th that the department hadn't dealt with that. And from the start, although first with the actual marauders, he was very focused. So I do agree. Some of the rhetoric he's saying now wasn't applied in the same way, but that's because of his nuanced and very, very serious regard for the institutional interests of the United States. I think he had a real distinction between what came before and what was coming now. Let me follow up one quick point about Trump. Can he really stay the course here with this not just martyrdom, almost messianic complex, but really exhorting his supporters as he gets, A, more charges built up? It does seem to me though, he raised money. He made everyone fall into line. DeSantis did look like a boob. The little bit we know is when you go to the ramparts, there have been like, what, six people, eight people. It's not clear to me that he's able to wave his magic wand as he did on the sixth and have the crowds pour out. What do you think?
1: Yeah. So look, great point, particularly on the fundraising numbers. They're not strong fundraising numbers. I mean, a million and a half dollars is a lot of money, but that is nowhere near what he used to attract in moments like this. So that's one data point that suggests maybe some of the enthusiasm has faded. I also think You know, a matter of Donald Trump hush money with an adult film star is not relatable to most people. So January 6th, people rallied to him because it was their franchise that they had been told was stolen from them, right? Their election was stolen, their democracy was stolen. So there was more of a didactic relationship between the grants and Donald Trump supporters than there is in a Manhattan courtroom over the Stormy Daniels matter. But I think what I am most taken by, Harry is the absence of any cracks in support for Donald Trump. What we're seeing almost as a permanency to Donald Trump's hold of the party, because this is a bit of a first impression for us, right? If Donald Trump is to be indicted, you would expect that Mike Pence and others would say, let's just see where the law takes this. You know, I stand with the president, but they gave a full... Obviously, it was new on attacking Bragg and not fully defending the substance of Donald Trump's case. But it was a full-throated defense of Donald Trump, the person and the candidate, which then the kind of the sadness, I think, that follows is, I think it's a tell what we will see if Bonnie Willis indicts, if the special counsel indicts on Mar-a-Lago, if Merrick Garland does indeed move on January 6th. I think we just saw how Republicans will react. So it may not be that there's this dramatic strengthening for Donald Trump. But it's the lack of any cracks in the veneer that suggests it's still his party, a strong political opportunity for Donald Trump, and possibly sustain this, a pathway to renomination for him.
4: By the way, this should panic Republicans who have any sense of reality, because if this is really accurate, I have no reason to doubt, David, Are they going to nominate a guy who's indicted for trying to overthrow the government, for trying to retain and obstruct justice? Listen, the Republican Party may be crazy, but I do not think the American people, by any stretch of the imagination, would reelect Donald Trump. And that has serious consequences for the Republican Party. Are they prepared to go down with the ship? Maybe they are. Maybe they figure it's easier for them to simply get wiped out in an election, let Donald Trump lose, and then pick up the pieces later. But if they have any hope of holding on to their House majority, any hope of retaking the White House, any hope of retaking the Senate, they have a huge problem. Because as things stand right now, Donald Trump is not being pushed out of the way. To the contrary, they can't find anyone who has the, well, the the nerve, the spine, to put it uh, more genteelly than I was initially thinking, to stand up to this guy. So given the fact there are no grown-up adults who have any nerve or any spine,
0: this is what they're going to go into in 2024, I guess. Well, you know, if you think about it as past his prologue, on the one hand, Donald Trump did not serve the Republican Party well during the midterm elections. There are many who disassociated with it. But the Virginia governor, even prior to that, was able to be successful and become elected without having the visible side-by-side support of Donald Trump. But I do wonder, because in recent months leading up to the midterm elections in particular, there was an approach taken by many Democratic incumbents and strategists to support candidates who were closely aligned to Trump in the primary season and then hoping in the general, the juxtaposition you talk about would inure to their benefit. And lo and behold, in many instances, it did, even though Democrats were at some points shamed to be saying, hold on, you're really going to support this someone who is very right wing or has a policy stance on issues that are antithetical to what the Democrats say they have stood for. But they said, look, if we presented the idea of this person over here, or the person who is closely aligned with our party, that we will be successful in the end. So I do wonder, as much as it would harm perhaps the perception of Republicans to say, this is the hill we we want to die on, it's worth the climb. I wonder how many Democrats are secretly, you know, rubbing their hands together politically and maniacally saying, no, this is exactly the person we would like to be the RNC nomination because there's a moral high ground we can retain or hope to gain on the hill that you want to to die on. And so I wonder from the political standpoint, how this is all playing not only for Republicans, but also Democrats. And finally, what Donald Trump as a candidate really needed in the last election in 2020 was independent voters. If you're talking about the fair-minded, et cetera, who are not going to say their allegiance one way or the other, I do wonder if they're the quote-unquote party that would spoil any idea that, this is not exhausting. And we're all probably already, our eyes, I'm going to send a bill to his campaign. Like I've got black spots under my eyes. I'm getting gray hair, just anticipation of thinking about a new presidential election season. It's exhausting I think so already. And so independent voters, I wonder how they will see the hills that people might die on. I think
4: Democrats probably have very mixed emotions because on one hand, they have been wrong before. They remember all too well 2016 when they thought oh, this guy could never get elected and they didn't really take the threat seriously. And they also know very well that if he is the nominee and he loses, he will try to start another violent armed insurrection if he loses, claiming once again that things have been rigged and things have been stolen. So no one really wants to go down that road. And there is, I think, a hope that the Republican Party will finally get rid of him for all of us. But on the other hand, as they look around and they see this completely feckless Republican Party, they got to say, well, Guys, if that's who you want to run against, I guess we'll have to. And there are going to be a lot of down ticket Democrats who are really happy because they think that this is going to not only harm Trump at the presidential level, but governors, senators, House members, state legislators, all the way down the ticket. And listen, if Donald Trump right now has only 35 percent of the electorate who believe the election was stolen, that says that about 65% of the American people have not lost their minds and are probably not anxious to reelect him. Republicans don't seem to be all that concerned or aware or seem to be willing to do anything about it.
3: Or maybe they're just in a box. First, his gumption is such, he not only forced them into a corner that these suggestions, the, the, the line they tried to to tread like Pence. Okay, poor Trump, but we must be peaceful. He mocked that very line. He actually said sarcastically, you know, peaceful, we're not going to be peaceful. But I agree with what you say. I'm really interested in, in David's thoughts because I'm not in the political sphere. But I think the lesson of the last couple of weeks to me is not simply they have to make that choice but they maybe have to make it here and now. You know, 80% of the party or more are for either him or DeSantis. In these two weeks, if you take the metric and the polls of just the head-to-head, Trump well increased his lead over DeSantis, which is now more than double. Now is the time for the big fundraisers. Now, it may be the case that pretty soon, if DeSantis can't knock him off, that's kind of the ball game. And you may well look to this sort of period, even before the formal announcement of the campaign as being the time he kind of sewed it up. It does seem to me a few more months like this with DeSantis, he's in too big a hole to dig out of. And then what do we think, Scott, Haley, whatever? Anyway, I wonder what your thoughts, especially, David, about whether there's a current urgency to the question that Jen and Laura are discussing.
1: Well, I think there's an important nuance lying just below the surface here, which is Other presidential candidates expressed their support for Donald Trump's situation, but they didn't drop out of the race. And it actually reflects the broader strategy for the party dealing with Donald Trump. They continue to hope that something else will rid the party of Donald Trump, but no one from within the party can do it themselves. So you have to demonstrate your loyalty to Donald Trump, the person, but they're all running right alongside him trying to demonstrate that loyalty to Trumpism and to MAGA, but being the better vessel and hoping that at some point voters will see them, Mike Pence, DeSantis, Haley, as the better vessel. Kathy Barnett was a candidate against Dr. Oz in the Republican primary for Senate in Pennsylvania. And you may recall in the last few weeks, she started skyrocketing up in that primary as the MAGA candidate. And Donald Trump, all in behind Oz, hit her hard on Twitter and said, she's great, but she's not ready. And what Kathy Barnett did there was something that telegraphed a strategy for DeSantis, Pence, and everybody else. She said, MAGA doesn't belong to just one person. It belongs to all of us. And it allowed her to say, I love Donald Trump and Trumpism, and I continue to support him, but the movement's about all of us. That's essentially what Pence and DeSantis and everybody else is doing. They're saying we're part of this movement, too. We're loyal to Donald Trump, but we're part of this movement and we want our place in it as well. It's a fine line, but it's a clear indicator of what their strategy will be. But that ultimately relies on someone else taking out Donald Trump because they're not going to be able to do it as candidates.
3: It's time now for our sidebar feature in which we ask a well-known person to explain an important legal concept in the news. And the topic today is the brave new world of driverless cars or autonomous cars and how the state and federal legal and regulatory schemes will try to deal with them. And to explain it to us, I'm very pleased to introduce Angela Johnson Reyes. Angela is a stand-up comedian, actress, and dancer. She rose to fame through her viral internet sketch series, Nail Salon her mad TV character Bon Kiki, and her now four comedy specials, the most recent of which is the Netflix special Not Fancy. Her first book, Who Do I Think I Am? Stories of Chola Wishes and Caviar Dreams came out earlier this year. So I give you Angela Johnson Reyes on Autonomous Cars.
5: Self-driving cars, a.k.a. driverless or autonomous cars, once seemed the stuff of sci-fi fantasy, but current technology has introduced the very real possibility that autonomous vehicles will become widespread. Companies like Waymo, a subsidiary of Alphabet, Google's parent company, boast of driverless cars traveling over 1 million miles in places like the Bay Area and Phoenix. Historically, a car without driving controls, such as a steering wheel and brake and gas pedals, would not have complied with federal motor vehicle safety standards. But in July 2021, a new federal law came into effect authorizing self-driving cars in specified operating areas on public roads. A follow-up regulation from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, specifies that self-driving cars must continue to provide the same levels of occupant protection as regular passenger cars. In addition, the U.S. Department of Transportation in 2016 issued the Federal Automated Vehicles Policy, guidelines addressing technology failures and passenger privacy, among other topics. The guidelines are meant to avoid a patchwork of state laws while maintaining sufficient flexibility to allow for innovation. It seems likely that the federal government will seek to impose uniform standards on driverless cars that preempt state regulation. But that hasn't happened yet. In 2017, the House of Representatives passed the Self-Drive Act, aimed to speed the adoption of self-driving cars and bar states from setting their own medley of performance standards. However, a complimentary bill in the Senate failed to pass after Democrats raised objections that it didn't do enough to address safety and liability concerns. In August 2022, a bipartisan group of members of the House launched a bipartisan effort to help revive the legislation, but it has yet to bring forward any new legislation. State lawmakers, meanwhile, have responded to the rapid evolution of autonomous vehicles by sponsoring and enacting various bills. At least 41 states have introduced legislation focused on driverless cars. These proposed bills centered on issues of safety, but also on greenlighting the use of autonomous vehicles in public spaces for testing and development. A useful example is California, where in 2012, the Governor Jerry Brown signed into law a bill that allows autonomous vehicles to drive on public roads if a qualified person rides along in case of an emergency. For talking feds, I'm Angela Johnson Reyes.
3: Angela's virtuoso talents are currently on display on her tour, and you can find tour dates and ticket information on her website, angela.com. That's a n j e l a h.com. She also has a new comedy special set to debut on Mother's Day weekend. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine & More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and
2: beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we stir up a discussion around cocktails, make your own, or buy them ready to drink. There's no question that mixing a delicious cocktail is truly an art form precise measurements and proportions, creative substitutions, the presentation itself, and even the speed of delivery are all factors that earn great mixologists the reputations they deserve. But for people who may not stock things like triple sec and bitters, a ready-to-drink cocktail that's pre-measured and mixed just might be worth pulling off the shelf. Ready-to-drink cocktails don't necessarily give you the satisfaction of creating a drink from scratch. But they do offer up undeniable convenience, removing the complexity of recipes, the burden of acquiring ingredients, and the time it takes to measure, pour, mix, crush, stir, and of course, repeat. Plus, you still have the ability to customize your drink, adding a splash of this or that, here or there, to your liking. So, whether you're into customization or convenience, ready-to-drink cocktails give you a little bit of both. Now, who says you can't have your cocktail and drink it too? So what's better, customization or convenience? Probably depends on the situation. It can be fun crafting your own cocktail. But when time is short, ready to drink cocktail sure does hit the spot. Either way, you can grab all the ingredients you need for a great craft cocktail or get your ready to go favorite at Total Wine & More.
3: Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, maybe we let it lie here for now and return to the maybe bigger, in fact, I'll start with that question, threat to Trump, which is Mar-a-Lago and the developments just today. We tape on Friday, Evan Corcoran has had to go to the grand jury to testify having lost his claim that he's shielded by attorney-client privilege. Any thoughts about how volatile or prospectively dangerous This development is in a whole nother case for Donald Trump.
0: As attorneys here, how extraordinary that the attorney-client privilege shield is gone. The idea that we all know who it belongs to and why it belongs to the client, not having somebody be able to run off and tell you, here's exactly what this person has told me about an issue and maybe even fatally undermining one's privacy, confidence, and perhaps representation. But the idea that a judge, more than one in a panel, essentially said, you have presented something sufficient to suggest that the crime fraud exception is in place here. I can't think of a time when I've ever had that happen in a courtroom, or any colleague of mine can recall where they've had this happen in a courtroom, because it's so rare. And I want to continuously underscore for people, as you all know, just how rare and extraordinary that is and how damning that is to suggest that there is even this prima facie case about a former president and the involvement of these classified docs. And let's not forget what Corcoran's role was. Corcoran was the person whose job it was essentially to certify That, yeah, the classified docs have been returned. Everything's where it should be. All is right in the world. And for this person who previously said, look, I can't answer that question about what I was told about these documents. I can't answer a question about any directions I was given. I can't give you information about any of those conversations. For him now to be testifying before a grand jury in this extraordinary case without us knowing what these documents even have, like what they are, we still don't know. What are these documents? We've seen the cover sheets. So what is it? Can you imagine if an attorney who would have the ear and, of course, the representation of a former president who refuses to return documents to the National Archives and otherwise, if we get some insight into why he wanted to retain them and for what purpose and how he wanted to thumb the nose or anything else, that would be extraordinary. Equally extraordinary could be, obviously, he says, no, I know nothing here's all I knew and I'm exonerating this person. But just the fact that this case has been made is stunning. You know, what's even
4: more stunning is this is the second time it's happened to Donald Trump. We've heard the crime fraud exception before. Different case, different judge. That was Judge David Carter in a case litigating whether John Eastman, the author of the phony elector scheme, had to give up correspondence, communications with Donald Trump, because the two of them were potentially involved in another crime, which was obstruction of an official proceeding or defrauding the government or sedition or something else. And that judge also held that there was a likelihood that they had committed a crime. So as odd as it is to have a single individual and one attorney get this treatment in other words, have the attorney-client privilege vitiated? It's happened twice to Trump. And that's because he treats his lawyers like accessories to his crime instead of lawyers. And somehow he gets lawyers to want to represent him that are pulled into this legal morass. It's worse than the mob. The mob lawyers are more careful than this than to get themselves involved. So it does tell you something about the mentality of Donald Trump and how he creates his own gr- Greatest vulnerabilities because he lets the prosecutors get an eye into the most confidential and potentially the most damning evidence against him, which is what he's been scheming about with his attorneys. So I agree, and I tend to think that the a lago case, in some ways, is much more dangerous to Donald Trump than January 6th. And the reason I say that is it's simpler it's easier to comprehend. There are a finite number of documents, a finite number of witnesses. You can see what the law exactly is and what potentially the charges would be. And although no prosecution is going to be anything near a slam dunk with Donald Trump, this seems closer that we could get to a slam dunk than something coming from the January 6th, which you're going to have to apply federal law in a way that Perhaps it's never been applied before because we've never had a president operating to disrupt Congress. We've never had a president um, that is trying to defraud an election. So there's nothing particularly exotic, legally speaking, about the Mar-a-Lago case. And the facts, if Evan Corcoran shows us what they are, could be absolutely damning. So if I were Jack Smith, I would be happy to have this all tied up you know, with a nice little bow from Evan Corcoran, go ahead, get his indictment and proceed with this as the January 6th investigation goes on and on and on and on, because that is extremely complicated and extremely difficult. And if I were Donald Trump, I would be worried not just about Alvin Bragg, I would be really worried about Mar-a-Lago and I would be worried about Fannie Willis, which you noted, Harry, because that too has a much more finite set of facts and finite law, and a jury potentially in Fulton County that is not going to be very hospitable to Donald Trump. So, if he's panicked, it could be a little bit of deflection here to play armchair psychiatrist and say what he's really upset about, not so much is Alvin Bragg, is Evan Corcoran and this locomotive that is barreling down the track at him.
3: I want to just add a few points. To what you said, which I agree with completely. So Laura, you know, 100 percent. Well, I've actually seen it a couple times, but DOJ takes it so seriously. You have to get, I think, either the assistant attorney general or the deputy attorney general's approval just to argue for a crime fraud exception. And something I have never seen they're not piercing just the oral communications to testify. In some ways, the more important evidence could be all the documents, including this tantalizing transcriptions of personal, personal audio recordings. What does that mean? But it seems to be coming from Trump's mouth and in an unguarded way where he thinks he's talking protectedly because he's talking to his lawyers. And just to Jen's point, this is, I think, so much more Dangerous for him than say Eastman or other things. Because remember, we've got like about 20 months of screwing around and bobbing and weaving, and can you show intent? This false declaration in response to a subpoena is just a crystalline moment of obstruction. And if the communications tie him to that, Man, that is the cornerstone. That's where Smith starts his opening and ends his closing. I mean, that is just, you know, really big stuff. And then I wanted to sort of follow up. So Trump is able to marshal the Republican troops behind him on something like the Bragg case, but can he do his same kind of pugilistic pushback strategy with respect to Mar-a-Lago and will the Republican faithful fall into line, do you think?
1: Oh, I think so. Look, he trotted out this, a a president can declassify things by thinking about it, right? That was ultimately the defense he landed on. And I'm sure House Republicans will get his back, that the president declassified these by the act of taking them into his personal possession. He'll also say they were just love letters, they were perfect documents, all this stuff. But I think building on exactly this conversation you've been having, What is also crystal clear is the scale of the violation. So, yes, there's the simplicity of lying, saying these are all the documents. That initial turnover where they said this is all the documents, I believe, was like somewhere around 35, give or take, documents. Well, he was actually hiding another 100. What happened in August when they seized documents, there were 100. This is not like Biden or Pence or others where there's a onesie, twosie in a garage or a onesie, twosie in an office. There is no way. That Donald Trump can say, oh, it was a mistake when we certified the 35. I didn't realize I had 100 others. He knew exactly what he had. And I think, look, we've learned politically from the Alvin Bragg news cycle of the last week. Republicans will rush to his defense. He will attack the prosecutors. But within the four corners of the law, Jen's point is exactly right. This is kind of open and shut.
3: All right, so let me then take it from the other direction. A lot of hunger and thirst in the country for accountability. Many people pointing out, brag, you know, it's a little bit unfortunate that he's first because it's on the overall scale of things, fairly modest. Let's say our, the final resolution of the whole Trump saga is a conviction here, but uh, walk away from the January 6th stuff. Is that for the country? adequate accountability if there's a conviction on Mar-a-Lago, or is it inadequate unless there's justice to pay on January 6th?
4: I would certainly hope that either in Georgia, which is just part of the coup, or on the larger tail, that there has to be accountability. And the reason for that is it's deterrence. It's not only deterrence for Donald Trump, but it's deterrence for any other politician. Why would not any politician who loses try all these stunts a second time if there's no legal consequence? This really is the central feature of our democracy, that the people decide that we have elections, people recognize the winner, and you don't take up arms against the government. You don't come up with some cock and bull scheme to change documents so it appears that different electors get to vote for your guy rather than the other guy. This is as fundamental as you get to the notion of democracy, the rule of law. And the law applies to everyone, whether it's the president or whether it's a street thug on the streets of New York City. And so I at least would find it devastating, devastating for our democracy if he were not in some forum held responsible for his attempt to thwart the peaceful transfer of power. If that's not a crime, then I think we are in serious, serious trouble as a democracy.
0: You know, so far, I think the American people can likely agree that the nickname in a week where Governor Ron DeSantis is talking about nicknames from Trump, Teflon Don seems to have stuck and it seems to be quite accurate. And so far, that is very frustrating for so many who look at the way that prosecutors wield their discretion and the different discussions that are happening behind the scenes about which cases to prioritize and how to use their finite resources that they do have to approach a variety of crimes. The fact that somebody who was the head of the executive branch of government, whose job it was to enforce the laws as written, would be able to retain such a nickname as Teflon Don, for all the reasons we've stated, I think it's very telling of how people have lost a great deal of confidence in our laws, a great deal of confidence in the wielding of discretion and are asking questions down the line about, well, then why is it that crimes from the everyday ordinary person get the hammer dropped and crimes from somebody who is supposed to be the exemplar of law enforcement gets to walk away? I think, though, the American people have prioritized in a sense These crimes.
3: The January 6th crime?
0: January 6th, they prioritized those crimes, I think, above others because it was so visible, because we all watched what happened in the Capitol, because we saw the about face from so many who were running from people who they later called tourists. I think that's very significant for all the reasons we talked about. I also think, though, the hush money payment case is not insignificant because it does have to do with the idea of what people were aware of prior to electing a person. Remember, those payments were made in 2016, if not mistaken. We didn't learn about it to the Wall Street Journal in, what, 2018. So there was a period of time that they were not aware of these things happening. So, But I do think because that came in the middle of his real term, people have thought about it differently, but not dismissively. So I think there is a requirement, given the Mueller years, which, for, unfortunately, for Merrick Garland, I think have blended for so many, that the appetite for accountability predated Merrick Garland's tenure, certainly predated Alvin Bragg's tenure, predated Fonnie Willis's tenure, and predated January 6th. I think there is an appetite to see accountability, but... There cannot be a political appetite for vengeance, because that will be something that will also be problematic to many. If the only motivation were to be political, that's not accountability, that's politics. But there seems to be, so far, more than enough reason to believe that politics is not at the heart of any of these pursuits. Hey,
1: Harry, if I could add something, because I agree with everything that's been said, and I think we would all agree you know, DOJ does not want to move until they know they could actually win the case, right? So they have to be very careful about this. But I lay that as a baseline to kind of disrupt it with this. I think we sometimes, particularly in the legal world, overthink things. And here's why. So consider this. Is it nearly a 1,000 or has it passed a 1,000 convictions that DOJ has gotten for people who broke and entered into the right. Capitol, right? I mean, they are knocking them down one after every day. There's a new headline. You've just gotten to call it a thousand give or take. A thousand convictions. They did not storm the Capitol because Kevin McCarthy or Nancy Pelosi asked them to. They didn't do it because Mitch McConnell asked them to, or Steve Bannon, or because they read something on Facebook. They did it because Donald Trump laid the predicate of the big lie, issued the invitation for them to come to Washington on January 6th, a day they otherwise would have had no idea what the certification of the election actually was. And then he gave a speech issuing the charge to go to the Capitol with strength, not with weakness. So we can consider, look, was there a conspiracy to disrupt an official proceeding? Did Donald Trump have a hand in that yada, yada, yada? Guess what? He incited violence that led to a thousand criminal convictions already. Maybe just reach for the basic. If we get to the end of this, there has to be accountability somewhere. It would almost be this grievous injury to our republic if Donald Trump did not face accountability for what essentially was a coup. So maybe don't overplay the hand if you're prosecutors and you're afraid you can't get all the way there. Line up the thousand convictions and say, and this is the final one, the guy that incited all of this violence. We're now going to bring on a very simple charge and hold him accountable that way so that history can record.
4: It. Boy, do I agree with that David. I think the notion that somehow they should go for the star and the moons and try to convict Donald Trump of seditious conspiracy for example would be an error. First of all, it will take forever and it will give innumerable reasons for appeal and for objections. And there is something to be said in this case for some I don't want to say speed or a rush to judgment, but some closure, some finality. The country cannot have this wound open for forever. We really do, as a country, need to move beyond this. And one thing I would say is there was this initial sense that, oh, we can't be prosecuting former presidents, we'll look like a banana republic. I think Donald Trump has done a very good job of showing that if we don't prosecute him, That would be the banana republic. This notion that you can threaten violence, that you can cook up all these crazy conspiracy theories, that you can come up with excuses for taking secret documents and just dare the prosecution to come after you. That's the banana republic. And I would hope that the Justice Department has kind of sensed this shift in the overall sentiment, the overall message here, which is if we let this guy go, then we are not a national laws. We're run by bullies and thugs. And the only way to restore and to really support the idea of a nation of laws is by prosecuting someone who is so blatantly, so publicly trashed the law and trashed the entire administration, the entire enforcement of justice. And so I really hope that Merrick Carlin and the people in the Justice Department, who you are right, David, there is an incredible bias towards caution. I would hope that they kind of get out and get the water out of their ears and go out there and listen to the sense that if we don't do
0: this, we are in a heck of a lot of trouble as a country. I just read this proverb the other day. It reminds me, I'm smiling when you're saying this, Jen, because it was, if I'm getting it right, it said, when a clown moves into the castle, He doesn't become a king. The castle becomes the circus. And when we look at what we are seeing so far, we have to really think about what we are allowing to come in to our nation and the leadership roles and what it does to the institutions themselves. Not just the particular house, but the entirety of the kingdom. And in a nation where we fought to be detached from a monarchy, we really are seeing more and more the collateral damage of what this all looks like and all the questions that are being raised. It's fascinating if we were just in a classroom looking at this esoterically. It's terrifying when we're part of an electorate. And I wish we all could have the sort of magic eight ball that answers the question of what will happen next. But for now, we still remain in this state as you began, Harry, in a vigil of sorts on indictment watch and decision watch, it seems, in 2023. I'm hearing
3: three votes for Mar-a-Lago documents not being enough, but also a lot of nuance justifiably. And I just I want to pick up a David. That's a really interesting suggestion. Our being all lawyers here. I'll convert it to a sort of practice point. But I think about it for Bragg. I really think about it for Fonnie Willis. And you've just made a great point for DOJ. Prosecutors here, especially with all the crazy distractions, really want to be clean and simple as they can. And the fact of a conviction, I think you're totally right, is going to be more important than the enormity of one. You know, we know Fonnie Willis is thinking, do I do a whole Rico case? You've just raised the point of how very big or small they could go. And, you know, all of this means delay. Just today, Mark Meadows, his executive privilege claim has been pierced. But if they charge him now to exert pressure, that's another, what, year? So there really is a legitimate, I think, factor for prosecutors to consider about retribution standing up for the rule of law that all this delay and kind of open wound that we have, as you put it, Jen, the time involved is a factor and a clean resolution, but not, you know, not letting the delay being a reason for just folding up and walking away.
4: By the way, I would say just as a legal matter, the guy who really thought that Article 2, rather, of the Constitution, let him do everything he wants. There's no single person who has done more damage to executive privilege and the attorney-client privilege than Donald (laughs) Trump. I have never seen so many cases in which executive privilege fell, so many decisions in which the crime fraud. I am sure future presidents will rue the day that Donald Trump got in there and made all this terrible law for them. But that's just a lawyer's point.
3: And the latest example is the D.C. Circuit giving, you know, the parties, no more of this delay. You've got eight hours or whatever, and then we're going to hold against you. All right, man, oh, man, so much happening, not just legally, even not primarily legally, but socially. I mean, the stakes, this whole discussion brings home again and again the stakes for the country and the society. So I thank you for it and serve up in our last minute The ever loved feature of five words or fewer, where we take a question from a listener and we all have to answer in five words or fewer. And today's question is What's the next object of oversight for Jim Jordan and his fearsome anti weaponization of government or whatever subcommittee? Anyone, five words or fewer.
4: Searching
0: for the Biden
3: relative.
0: <laughs> okay. I'm gonna say calling Michael Avenatti to testify.
3: <laughs> <laughs> wow. Talk about time. There's there's David's children, but Michael Avenatti, he's lived six <laughs> lifetimes and not not great ones.
1: I would say school boards and superintendents.
3: There you go, and a word left over. All right, I am Rainbows, a deep state conspiracy. <laughs> That's all the time we have. Thank you so much to Laura, David, and Jen. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This week, we posted a conversation with lawyer-scholar Richard Bernstein about how the Supreme Court can and should dispose of the independent state legislature case that it heard a few months ago. Submit your questions to talkingfeds.com questions, whether they're for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen, sound engineering by Matt McArdle, Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by David Littman, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Thanks very much to Angela Reyes for explaining the federal and state regulatory regimes for driverless cars. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.